Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The opening verses of the judgment in Matthew chapter 25 establish what the Bible repeatedly proclaims on every page, within every paragraph, and in every single verse. There is one power, one judge, and one authority in the Bible. On the precipice of the crucifixion, Matthew reminds us that the weakling sheep whom we are about to pierce is also God's anointed. You know, the God of Abraham, of whom Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. That God. Matthew thought it would be a good idea to give you a preview of his throne before his son's execution, just in case you missed that verse. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 33. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 389 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are moving forward now from the parable of the talents into the concluding section of Matthew 25 before the passion of Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, the judgment. And right out of the gate, we're confronted with all of these classic symbols from the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament. And we're used to hearing these symbols with a kind of contradiction, but something different is happening here. In a way, at least as they're presented before the crucifixion of Jesus, they're presented as something concrete, as something tangible, as something in your face and measurable in the same way that you can measure the literal weight of Pharaoh's chariot or Caesar's throne. Just listen to Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, you have the reference to the Son of Man, the Ben-Adam. We've talked about this many times. Father Paul has explained this at length in his series on Genesis on the Tuesday program. Jesus is 
an ordinary Ben Adam. So at least in that title, which is used in Daniel, which is used in Ezekiel, which is used elsewhere in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, you have Jesus making himself ordinary. However, when he talks about his glory in Greek, doxa, in Hebrew, kabod, which refers to the weightiness of his tribute, the weightiness of the spoils of war, the weightiness of the statue in the temple, the substance of his might in his reign. It's striking, Richard. I expected when I read this verse to see that he was coming riding upon the clouds, and that's not what it says. And I want to really stress that point. He's coming in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious, parenthetically, weighty, heavy throne. Which means that this is Jesus coming in power at the end of 1 Corinthians. And everything is being handed over to him by his Father, and he will put everything under his feet. It's no longer this, is he really powerful? Is he not powerful? Are we dealing in metaphor? No, he is coming to conquer. Now, that strange contradiction, that oxymoronic tension, as Father Paul likes to call it, is still there in the storyline. So Matthew is still messing with us because Jesus is presented as the one who puts all things under his feet just before he's about to be executed in the story. But this is like a flash forward to what you should expect after he's raised in power as a warning and a reminder not to be fooled by his coming execution and to be mindful of the threat of what happens if you don't do something with the paradosis that was entrusted to you. Any hearer of this verse knows that this is not a good image because the last time, two verses ago, when we heard about the holder of wealth, the Lord, coming, he came to see who was profitable and who was not profitable, who gave him his due and who did not give him his due. And last time we heard about this, he cast one of his slaves who was not profitable into the outer darkness. So already we're primed from verse 30 to realize that this is not a hopeful image. This is not a kind image. This is not a fluffy image. This is the Son of Man coming in glory, not just for a laser show. He's coming because judgment is nigh. And so I really like this image of Jesus paralleling Caesar. Caesar in fact, wouldn't come to judge, you would be forced to appear before Caesar for judgment because his throne would be planted. It would be a weighty throne, the throne of his glory. The weighty throne is in the weighty throne room. And if you want to know how weighty a throne room is, anyone who's been to the Louvre in Paris can see the frescoes or the murals, the stone carvings that the Babylonians had in their palaces, 
that are three times as tall as I am of fearsome beasts or of the destruction of cities. And that would be the imagery in the throne room of the king of Babylon. Okay, so when you enter into this throne room, the whole point is for you to be in awe, to be in fear of the glory of this judge, of this king in whose presence you're forced to appear. That's why people didn't want to appear in the presence of the king. That's why you put your eyes to the ground when you came in the presence of the king, because you dared not look on him. It was too scary. This person literally had the power of life and death over entire cities, let alone your puny person. And when this comes after this image of not just the destruction of one slave in verse 30, but in this entire arc that we've been hearing of the destruction of Jerusalem itself and all of its great buildings, we know that this son of man and his train, like his entourage, the holy angels, all of his messengers are around him. They are here to enforce the policy, the law, but in Scripture, the wisdom that would be manifested in the judgments of the king. Father Paul always talked in the context of the Psalms about the throne is the representation of the judge. And so the throne and the judge are one and the same. When the Son of Man comes to be on a throne, he is here to judge. And we just know that, as you said, Father, it's about whether you profitably worked the gospel in order to give the Lord his due. This text also brings together the imagery of Psalm 2. It's the gathering of all the nations for judgment on Mount Zion. It's the Lord consolidating his power through his demoted replacement for Caesar, the Lord Jesus Christ. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 34. We've spent a lot of time this year on Ezekiel chapter 34. We've spoken about it. We've really tried to reflect on it for these leadership discussions we've had, especially in an American context where people get very excited about egalitarianism and me against the man and all of this nonsense. Because in Ezekiel chapter 34, it is very clear that the Lord is upset because the sheep are pushing each other around. Ezekiel 34, in a way, is a critique of Facebook. <laughs> we like to pick on Facebook. I mean, we were talking about it this morning, how Jesus and Matthew instructed Peter to take care not to scandalize the tax collector. By scandalize, we mean not to take any action that would lead the tax collector off the path of the gospel. 
And when you go online, people are doing that all the time. They think they're bearing witness to what's right, to their ismos. Be they a this or a that, they put their latest avatar on their Facebook profile, telling everyone who disagrees with them why they're stupid. And then they offend people who disagree with them. And they feel emotionally self-satisfied that they stood up for the truth, more obnoxiously for their truth, whatever that means. So everybody is standing up and everyone is speaking out and everybody is holding fast to the truth, their truth, a truth, whatever. And everybody is pushing everybody around because everybody thinks that they have a throne. And Matthew 25, verse 31, establishes one throne. And Matthew 25, verse 32, explains that it is this one throne drawing upon Ezekiel chapter 34 that is going to put an end to all the pushing and shoving between the sheep and the goats on Facebook. Once and for all, the shepherd is going to separate them one from another. And everyone before the shepherd is on the same level. Very important to hear and understand how serious and ominous this text is. It is very ominous because it's a single judge for all the nations. Nobody is following their own conscience. No one is following their own view of truth. No one is following their own anything. The only one whose conscience functions here is this one son of man who will be sitting on this throne of glory. That's the only conscience that matters. That's the only wisdom that matters. That's the only decision that matters. Only this one judge. When we were reviewing Ezekiel 34 before this episode, one detail that Ezekiel includes that Matthew does not have is that the judgment is between fat and skinny cattle in Ezekiel 34, verse 20. Why is this relevant? Because, I mean, wouldn't any shepherd want to have as much fat cattle as possible? Like, isn't that a good thing? And, you know, that's that's what he wants, right? The problem is, why does he have some who are fat and some who are skinny? It's because some have been getting more than their fair share, and some have not been getting enough. They are not getting their fair share, which goes along with what you were saying a moment ago, Father, which is that you have certain cattle that are pushing away, pushing around other cattle so that they can get more. So this isn't just a critique of Facebook. This is a critique of capitalism, that I'm allowed to take as much as I can and if others don't get their fair share, it's not my problem. Because this shepherd is going to make it your problem. If you have more than the other, it is your problem. Let's take another look then at the parable that came before this in Matthew 25. There, some had more and some had less, right? 
But the reason why they had more is not because they took the talent of the one who had one talent. It's because they went out and traded it. And as the Lord wanted them to, they went out to the table, to the trapezitis, so that they could engage in the table fellowship in order to gain more. So the way that these sheep and goats are going to be judged is on how they engaged the gospel, engaged the talent that was given to them in order to create more and to profit from it, and not to profit from it so that they became fat, profit from it so they could render to the Lord what was rightfully his, because it was his talent, whether one, five, or ten, to begin with. He was the one who made the initial investment in giving them the gospel. And if one gets fat and another is skinny, it's because they took advantage. But if one gets more and another gets less, he turns that over to the Lord. Everything, the fullness, belongs to the Lord alone, not to the sheep and not to the cattle. To those fat cattle, the extra belong to them. To the good slave, the extra belonged to the Lord. And so when the judge comes with his holy angels, it will be to see, did you gain personally from this, from the back of the gospel that was taught to you? Or did you profit from it in order to return those fruits to the Lord who owns the land. I appreciate your point about greed because you're right. It really underscores the critique in the parable of the talents. And honestly, the urgency of the escape from Jerusalem, because why are you trying to grab your stuff? Just get out of the city because I'm going to collapse the whole thing. Stop worrying about mammon. Stop worrying about buildings and institutions and all of the material stuff that goes along with it. All you need to do is carry my teaching out into the wilderness. But it also fits the discussion about social media and ideology, Rich, because when you update your avatar with a social message, be it liberal or conservative, which are constructs themselves. So I hate even using the words liberal or conservative because it's all part of the same platonic lie. But whatever ismos you subscribe to, whatever statue you fashion in your mind that you begin to preach online with your avatar, once you do that, you yourself are becoming a tool of neoliberalism, which tries to monetize this fake morality. So this fake online morality, whatever flavor you subscribe to, it doesn't matter. This applies to every single listener, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of platonic ideology, of made-up philosophy. Once you participate in that online, once you put a bumper sticker of any kind on the back of your car, you are participating in the profiteering and the monetization 
of the false god that leads to shoulder pushing and someone else suffering. And you're under the condemnation of this text. I really like the point that you made about greed because it's interconnected. You cannot serve the poor with a clever marketing scheme. You cannot end poverty by selling iPhones. I'm sorry. It's a very nice jingle. It makes you feel good about punching a clock, but it's a lie. The only way to feed the poor is with the bread of the gospel. Everything else is a lie. And by the bread of the gospel, I don't mean with your religious ideology. I mean exactly, I mean exactly what Paul teaches. That if someone is doing the work of the gospel without having heard the gospel, it's a shame for those of us who have the law of Moses already and we are under greater condemnation. So it doesn't even require that we preach the gospel for the gospel to be bread for the hungry. We have to understand and hear this because we think too highly of ourselves, and we are too quick to justify ourselves and to justify our own comfort with our very convenient neoliberal philosophy of greed can be a way to take care of the poor and to educate the masses. Are you kidding me? It's not going to work. And we're already seeing the consequences of this lie. And I hope we can turn back from it, but I'm not confident. And we can undo a lot of the damage, but we can't undo what's happening to the physical world because of our greed. So we will be under the footstool of the Lord. There's no doubt. A lot of people will complain that the gospel is not practical in this world. And this is absolutely true. Uh, the gospel is not an acceptable teaching and if you are trying to find a morality in Milton Friedman and neoliberalism, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the gospel by doing so. Because the morality that people attach to neoliberalism is that, you know, in order to be a good neoliberal, you shouldn't go and take other people's piece of the pie. You should grow the pie. If you grow the pie then you don't have to take from others. You contribute to yourself and you contribute to others at the same time. And by adding to everyone's wealth, therefore you're being good. That's like saying if everyone's a drug addict, no one's a drug addict. <laughs> right. This is a way that neoliberalism allows us to remain greedy. The parable above of the talent reminds us that for the slave... Greed is not functional. If you make five talents off the five talents that are given to you, those go to your Lord. If you make two talents from the talents that are given to you, then those talents go to your Lord. doesn't matter how big the pie is. The pie belongs to the Lord. <laughs> you, don't, you don't own a piece of the pie. We're not talking about socialism or capitalism or communism. 
we're talking about the one emperor who owns it all. If you are scriptural, you live in the divine empire of the one eternal King and Lord Jesus Christ under the Father of Fathers, our God, the God of Abraham, who is the sole proprietor of everything. All of these human philosophies seek to justify our greed. Socialism is a way of saying, oh, no, 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 everyone gets to be equally greedy and have an equal piece of the pie. Democracy says everyone gets a piece of the power pie and everyone gets to be a little bit like Caesar, not just one Caesar. It is always to justify our biological desire to be greedy, to get fatter, and to get more powerful so that others can't take away from us. This is our biological desire for human freedom, and this is what neoliberalism tries to justify. But according to this, there is a single judge, like you said, Father, who's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and we're going to learn soon what the criteria is that he uses when trying to decide whether you are a sheep or a goat, and it is not justifiable by you. As we know from the previous parables, you might not even get a coat because you're running so quickly from your house. The very buildings of Jerusalem won't be standing anymore. There is no pie. The only pie that exists belongs to the Lord. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.